things are not as they appear. The, uh, the definition of irony, or at least the simple definition, is something, uh, something that is said or done, right? Something is said or done, but the opposite is meant. The opposite is what happens. That's kind of a simple definition of irony. It's a lot easier to define than it is to actually use. But, for example, if it's 100 degrees outside and I say to you, man, I really wish it would warm up a little bit, that's irony. That's verbal irony. Another example would be the Titanic. Um, It was an unsinkable ship. And yet on her first voyage across the Atlantic, she sank. That's irony. And what is going on here is deepening levels of irony. Things are not as they appear. Now, here's, here's a good tip for understanding the Bible as you try to read the Bible and try to understand it, that if you want to know what a particular passage is about, look for repeated words and phrases. If you want to know what an author is trying to communicate, look for repeated words and phrases. The words king and kingdom are all over this passage. And so what you have here is really a showdown between two kingdoms, right? Let's, let's paint the scene. Let's take a look at this scene, okay? You have Pilate. He's the governor of this particular part of the Roman Empire. In case you didn't know, Israel at this point in history is under Roman control, and while the Jews have a certain amount of, um, of authority over cultural and religious life to really do anything, for instance, capital punishment, they have to appeal to the Romans because the Romans are in ultimate control. Caesar rules Israel and Pilate works for Caesar. And so the Jews, having tried Jesus themselves and having figured out that they want him executed, they now have to take him to Caesar. They have to take him to Pilate. And so the question, what I think John is doing with this passage is he's forcing us to ask the question, who's really the king? I mean, you have Pilate on his judgment seat and you have the the Jewish authorities who are there, the the mob who's crying out for Jesus' blood and Pilate in his royal robe sitting on his throne and here you have this day laborer from Galilee, this wandering rabbi. Who's really in charge? Who's really the king? Who has real power? What does he do with it? And maybe even more importantly, not just who is the king, but who is your king Because what we're going to see as we walk through this passage is that Jesus, the true king, gives himself into an upside-down world. There is is nothing just about what happens here. The world is upside-down. It's in chaos. And Jesus, as the rightful king, he actually subjects himself to the upside-down world so that he can take it and turn it right side up. Let's just walk through and look at some of these ironies that John points out for us. The very, the very first one is the irony of empty religion. 
as the Jews carry Jesus to Pilate's house, or to Pilate's headquarters, really, his home, he would have stayed there as well while he was in Jerusalem, there was this law, right, that a Jew couldn't go into, uh, into a Gentile home lest he would be defiled. And so it says they carried Jesus to the governor's headquarters. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. I want you to, I want you to see how, how ironic John is being. These the, just imagine the scene, right? They, they ring the doorbell, and they're like, Hey, Pilate, do you mind, could you come out here? We're not allowed to go in there. There might be some pork or something. We would be defiled, and we need to observe the Passover, this worship feast. And um, So we can't come in your house because that might defile us, but we need to have this man killed. Could you come out here? How empty their religion is. It doesn't, even, it doesn't even touch their hearts. If you want an indication of religion that doesn't touch the heart, look for religion that only deals with small things, things that you can accomplish, things that you can do. I don't gamble. Now, I don't mind gossiping and destroying people with my words, but I don't gamble. Gambling's evil. Alcohol, evil. It's bad. I don't, I don't drink. Now, this segment of the population, they're really just poor beggars. They need to go back to their own country. They're, they're less than human. But I don't drink. You see what I'm saying? That religion that doesn't touch the heart deals in small things, deals in peripheral matters, doesn't really address the core issues. These Jews want to kill an innocent man, but they're afraid to defile themselves in Pilate's house when their hearts are already defiled But that's okay, because as we go forward, we see that Pilate necessarily doesn't have any love lost for the Jewish authorities. He can tell that they're trying to to get one over on him. There probably would have already been some conversation between them. After all, there were some Roman soldiers that went to arrest Jesus. In order for that to happen, the Jews would have had to be talking to Pilate the whole time. And so he's not surprised that they show up at his house. He was kind of expecting this, but he realizes that their charge is a little iffy. And so he says, now what exactly did this guy do wrong? Deal with him according to your own law. And they say, no, we can't do that. We want him executed. And here's the amazing thing. Here is, here is the richness of the, the irony of Jesus' execution. Verse 32 This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus had said repeatedly, if I am going to draw all men to myself, I must be lifted up. Now, the Jews, they executed by stoning. That didn't involve lifting someone up. That actually involved putting someone in a hole and then covering them with rocks. Jesus is to be lifted up. And the only people who can execute by lifting up are the Romans. They executed by crucifixion. And so the beautiful irony here is that all of this is going exactly according to plan. What Jesus is about to undergo and everything he's undergone thus far is all going the way that it has to. It's all going according to plan. 
Why does it matter that Jesus is lifted up? Well, in Jewish law, in Deuteronomy, it says that everyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed. Jesus has to take on the curse. Galatians 3.13, the Apostle Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So in order to fulfill his mission, he must be hanged on a tree. He must become the curse. But that's not, the irony doesn't stop there. Jesus and Pilate get into this conversation about the nature of the kingdom. Pilate goes into his headquarters and he looks at Jesus and he says, Are you the king of the Jews? Now that sounds like a simple yes or no question, but it's not a simple yes or no question. And so Jesus pushes back. He says, Are you saying that because they said that? Or are you asking for yourself? What do you mean, am I the king of the Jews? What does that mean for you, Pilate? Pilate, sarcastically, am I a Jew? Your people brought you here. What have you done? And so Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It means my kingdom doesn't value what worldly kingdoms value. My kingdom doesn't run on worldly kingdom standards. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. They would have taken up arms. They would have fought against your soldiers. But that's not how my kingdom works. Rome is concerned with power and might. The peace of Rome is secured with Roman armies. Rome expands and grows by using the sword. But that is not how Jesus' kingdom grows. Jesus' kingdom really isn't concerned with boundaries. It's not concerned with borders. It's not concerned with territories. The great irony of Jesus' kingdom is that it crosses all the boundaries and it encompasses every nation. It's not just concerned with a stretch of land we call Palestine or the mass of land we call the United States. Jesus doesn't see borders. He sees souls. He sees people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And he wants to see them rescued from sin. And he wants to see them brought together to worship God. That's what Jesus' kingdom is all about. So yes, he's a king, but he's not that kind of king. And his kingdom grows not by using the sword, but by using the word. This is why the crusades were so disastrous, really even continue to be disastrous for us. Because they confuse the goal of God's kingdom with the goal of earthly kingdoms. They used the sword to conquer earthly territory and they did it in the name of Jesus. But Jesus' kingdom doesn't grow like that. Jesus' kingdom doesn't have to use power and might to crush its enemies. Jesus' kingdom actually infiltrates the hearts of his enemies and changes them. And Jesus' kingdom expands by conquering hearts with the truth. Look at how he answers Pilate in verse 37. Pilate says to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Jesus, what, what kind of truth is he talking about? Two plus two equals four? No, truth of the law of gravity? No. When Jesus says he comes into the world to bear witness to the truth, he's talking about the, the truth about humanity and the truth about God, the truth about mankind, that each and every person is in rebellion against its creator and is desperately wicked. And the truth about God, that he sends his one and only son into the world to rescue those people from their sin, those who will believe. That's the truth that Jesus uses to conquer the world. And he does it without signing a treaty or pulling a trigger. That is how the kingdom of Jesus works. And then he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That's actually a backhanded invitation to Pilate. The unspoken question is, Pilate, will you listen to my voice? Will you hear the truth? Will you follow me? Will you belong to my kingdom? I mean, it's really interesting. Think about this. Pilate is the interrogator. Pilate is the one in the position of authority. And yet here Jesus is questioning him. Here Jesus is putting him on the spot. Things are not as they appear. Pilate, will you listen to my voice? Will you listen to the truth? And Pilate says, what is truth? And he walks away. What is truth? May we never be like Pilate. Look, there are some of us, some of us think we're so clever because we, we're always asking questions. We're always trying to get to the bottom, always questioning. But did you know that there are some questions that are not honest questions? That sometimes when you ask a question, you actually already have the answer in mind and your question is really, it's really what Pilate does here. Pilate doesn't want to know what the truth is. The answer is right in front of him. He just simply says, ah, what is truth? And he walks away. May we not be like Pilate, so clever that we're always asking but never standing for the answer. Always seeking the truth but never actually finding it. C.S. Lewis says this, You can't go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. To see through all things is the same as not to see. Some of us think we're clever because we want to keep asking and seeking and we're trying to see through everything. And Lewis says at some point that has to stop. There are some things so solid you can't see through them. And so if you claim to be able to see through everything, you actually are blind. You see, Jesus has actually already answered Pilate's question. He answered it back in chapter 14 when he told Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the truth. He is the truth about God in a person. And so Pilate asked the question, 
when the answerer was staring him right in the face, but he walked out and refused to see it. May we not refuse to see it. Then there's the irony of Barabbas. After he'd said this, Pilate goes back outside and he looks at the Jews and he says, Hey, this guy's not a threat to me. I find no guilt in him. Your charge trumped up. There is nothing about him that threatens Rome. Take him back. You have a custom that I should release one man for you, so I'll do that this year. Which one do you want? Do you want the king of the Jews or do you want Barabbas? Now, here's what you need to know about Barabbas. He was no, even though most uh, translations use the word robber, that Greek word there, that's a whole lot more than a simple thief. This was not a man who uh, stole bread to feed his family or stole money from people on the highways. This man was was a terrorist. He was, a, he, was a, he was a leader of a rebellion against the Roman Empire. Right? These, these guys, like Barabbas, would live in the rural areas and they would do, they were, they were guerrilla warriors. And so they would do whatever they, can, they could to try, from both political reasons and monetary reasons, to take back Israel from the Romans. That's who Barabbas was. He had murdered people to threaten Rome. And so there's the. There's the irony right there. Barabbas, a true threat to the Roman king, is to be released. And the man who is no threat to the Roman king is to be kept. But it goes deeper than that. Barabbas' name, that name Barabbas means son of the father. The Jews choose this son of the father, and reject the true son of the father. They want a rebellious murderer, and they reject the true king in front of them. Then there's the irony of the thorns. Pilate takes Jesus, and he has him flogged. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. They're mocking him. And Pilate goes back out to the Jews and he says, Look, I'm going to bring him back out. I want you to know I find no fault in him. All right, so I've taken him and I've beat him. Right, I've given him some punishment. Now, I'm serious. Take him back. I don't have any charges against him. And then he brings him out. Right, He brings him out with a crown of thorns and the purple robe. And he says, Behold the man. Behold the man. I want you to, I want you to picture this scene. Jesus is now bloodied. This crude, thorny crown wrapped around his head. One of the soldiers grab a a purple robe and it's probably got bits of blood on it as well and it's draped over his sagging shoulders. What a pitiful excuse for a man. 
And Pilate says, Behold the man. You know, the Hebrew word for man is Adam, Adam, as in the first man. And when Adam sinned against God, the curse that he laid on him was the curse of thorns and thistles. God said, cursed will be your work. You will get from the ground thorns. And so thorns are a sign of the curse. And now here we have Pilate saying, behold the man. Here comes the man, the last Adam, the real Adam, wearing Adam's curse on his head so that Adam's sons and daughters don't have to. Pilate was more right than he knew. Jesus is the man. He is the only man. But the humiliation doesn't stop there. The chief priests, the officers, they see him. They see him robed and crowned so crudely and they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate's just done. Take him yourselves. You crucify him yourself. They really can't do that. But Pilate wants nothing more to do with this sham. And so the Jews answer, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Now this, you've got to think, Pilate Pilate now gets a little bit scared. But you've got to think about their backgrounds. For For the Jews, when they say the son of God, that meant something else. In fact, in the Old Testament... Um, a, a king could be called the son of God, okay? But for a Roman, steeped in Roman mythology, now this is a mighty terrifying prospect. Did I just beat and mock a, a son of God, a son of a God, some kind of minor deity? What have I done? And so he, he rushes he, back inside and he says, Jesus, he asks Jesus, where are you from? Jesus doesn't answer him. And Pilate says, you better answer me, boy. I can crucify you or I can let you go. And I love Jesus' answer. You would have no power over me unless it was given to you. You think you're in charge. But really, someone else is in charge. My father is in charge. And so Pilate seeks to release him. The Jews, realizing that they're losing this battle, they pull out, they pull out all the stops. They go with the political maneuver. You know, Pilate, if you let this man go, you're not a friend of Caesar. Now, history tells us that, uh, that Pilate, he was a cruel man, and he was also a cowardly man, which is probably why he was as cruel as he was. And not long after this, he was going to be banished. He was going to be expelled from his post and expelled from Rome. Uh, And so uh, Pilate is not on good footing with the powers that be. Uh, And so when they threaten him, you know, if you let him go, you're not a friend of Caesar. 
Now they're appealing to Pilate's baser instincts. And he realizes that if, or he thinks that if he lets this man go, that he's going to get in trouble with the boss. He's going to get in trouble with Caesar. And so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat. Pilate sits on the judgment seat over Jesus. And he says to the Jews, Behold your king. You see, Pilate's taunting them now. Pilate's taunting them. He's, I mean, he's got this, he's got this bloody, ragged-looking hovel of a man, crowned with thorns, robed in purple, and he's basically saying to the Jews, look, look, this is the only king you're ever going to have. Here he is. Behold your king, mocking Jesus. You want me to crucify your king? Mocking Jesus. And the great, this is the greatest irony of all, because Pilate is absolutely right. This bloody, bruised, pitiful-looking Man really is the king. The one who looks so unworthy, the one being judged by Pilate and jeered by the masses, is actually the one who will judge from heaven's throne and be cheered by 10,000 times 10,000 voices that sound like the roar of thundering waters. When Pilate says, Behold, your king, he speaks truer than he knows, which brings us to the point of decision. In the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, the main leader, the main general, Joshua, at the end of the book, after he has led the armies of Israel all over Canaan to conquer land, he challenges the people. As they're wrapping up, there's still some work to do, but Joshua says, choose. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will it be the gods that your fathers worshipped in Egypt? Will it, be, will it be the gods of the people we've just conquered? Or will it be Yahweh? Will it be the Lord? Choose. Choose this day whom you will serve. And as Bob Dylan sings, you're always going to serve somebody. So choose. The Jews have a choice. Shall I crucify your king? To which they say, we have no king but Caesar. They reject their king and they don't even realize it. So I would put the same challenge to you. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will it be Caesar? He's an appealing choice. He has power. He has the robes. He has the money. He has the wealth. He has the influence. He has the smarts. Too many of us are allured by those things. 
Caesar looks like the winner. Will it be Caesar or will it be Jesus? Caesar looks like the winner, but looks can be deceiving. Because this situation is all upside down. But the one who's in the middle of it, underneath the cheering mob, underneath the cowardly dictator, underneath all the people who seem to be in charge and who have all the power, underneath all the chaos, there is a king. And he may be wearing a crown of thorns now. He may be bruised and bloodied now. But there is coming a day when he will ride a white horse and those nail-scarred hands will hold a sword and they will rule the world. He is the humble king. He is the king. He He doesn't win by bending people to his will. He doesn't win with power. He wins in humiliation. He wins by giving himself so that those who are under a curse, so that those who are pricked with thorns, so that those who deserve to be hung on a tree will not be hung on a tree and will enjoy an eternity of no thorns forever. Choose. Who's it going to be? Which king will you serve? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would see clearly. That we would not be deceived by manipulation. That we would not be deceived by... uh, the world's promises of power and authority and wealth, for we know who has real authority. I pray that we would see Jesus and that we would trust Him with our lives. We ask it in His name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. We're going to sing this song a little slower than we sang before and give us time to think about and pray, um, make it our prayer that God would, we would make God king in our lives. You are king of